Now, last week we opened at the, we looked at the opening of the Gospel of Mark in the first, first uh, 13 verses of chapter 1, and we saw the stage set for Jesus' ministry. John had come to prepare the way of calling the nation of Israel to repentance and back to God. Jesus, we saw, was divinely revealed as the Son of God and the Messiah at his baptism by the miraculous announcement from heaven and the descending of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was also, also identified himself with the sinners that he came to redeem through that baptism. Then we saw a time of testing in the wilderness where he faced the temptations that were common to every person and that Christ overcame Satan and proved his worthiness as the second Adam and redeemer of humanity. Today we see his ministry in Galilee begin and his calling of the first disciples. Well, what is the message of Jesus and what does he expect of his disciples? Well, let's look at the next section of verses here, chapter 1, verses 14 to 20 to find out. And let's start with verses 14 and 15. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here in these two verses, we see the message, the message. No, not a Bible translation, but we see the message of Jesus. Now, the first thing that we see here is the timing and location of Jesus's ministry that Mark records. We see that after John was put into prison, this is when Jesus started to minister in Galilee. Now, Mark here just mentions as a historical reference point that John was imprisoned by Herod Antipas. Now, Mark goes into further detail about, his, about that arrest and execution of John later in Mark chapter 6. We see that in verses 14 to 29 of that chapter. The verse here says that Jesus came to Galilee. But if he wasn't in Galilee before John was arrested, where was Jesus? Where was he? We need to remember that Mark is kind of action-driven in his writing. So Mark picks up the account. He continues his writing some six months, possibly a year, after Jesus' baptism and time in the wilderness. But Jesus was not idle during that time. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, all have that Jesus went to Galilee after John was arrested. They all agree on that. But the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus was in Judea for much of that time after his baptism. We see this in John, from John 2, verse 13, through chapter 4, verse 4. Because he is in Judea and Jerusalem, and in chapter 4, he has to go north to Galilee. And verse 4 of that one says, he needed to go through Samaria. He needed to go north. it seems that there was a time of overlap in the ministries of John and Jesus. And we see a little bit of that hinted in John chapter 3, verses 22 and 24. 
Now, the way Matthew expresses this in Matthew 4.12, he kind of refers to Jesus' coming to Galilee as a withdrawal from Judea. He says he departed to Galilee. It was almost withdrawing out of Judea to return to Galilee. Now, Galilee was north, was the northernmost part of the region, and was past Samaria, was on the far side of it. Now, while Galilee was populous and fruitful, it wasn't overly populated by priests and Pharisees like Jerusalem and Judea. So it was after John's arrest that Jesus left Judea for Galilee and began a more extensive ministry there. John's ministry came to an end with his arrest. We do not see, essentially, as we understand it, from John was arrested, he never left the prison. John's ministry had ended, so Jesus's could begin in earnest. Now, verses 14 and 50 give a rough summary of Jesus's, of his ministry in Galilee. Now, his Galilean ministry is covered a large portion of Mark. It covers roughly from chapter 1, verse 14, all the way through about chapter 8, verse 26. Verse 14 says that Jesus came preaching the gospel of God. Then in verse 15, we have a summary statement of Jesus' message. It says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But what is he saying here? MacArthur says that Jesus' coming marks a turning point in salvation history. This word time shouldn't be understood as time on a clock or a date on a calendar. That's not what this word means. This word is a little more indefinite, though it speaks of a time of an event to happen. This time is fulfilled, meaning the appropriate time for Messiah to offer salvation had come. And we see similar statements to this in Galatians 4.4, where Paul says, at the fullness of time. And then in Ephesians 1.10, where he uses a similar phrase. Jesus is working on God's timetable. The time of waiting is over. The Messiah has come. But not only is he saying that he as Messiah has come, completing that time of waiting, but Jesus is also offering the kingdom. It's called here the kingdom of God. A kingdom needs three things, really. A ruler with the power and authority to rule a realm to rule, and therefore people, and the rule to be functioning. Jesus is offering God's kingdom, something that doesn't need to be built by human hands, but, it is, but is offered, given by God. And in the most broadest sense, the kingdom of God refers to God's sovereign rule over all creation and every moral and intelligent creature, including angelic beings. Now, the phrase kingdom of God is used 14 times in Mark, and the uses, uses are slightly different depending on the context of the passage. Here, 
However, the meaning is simply that Jesus is offering himself as the Messiah King and the promised kingdom from the Old Testament prophets. This was a, and this was a common element of Judaism at the time, and most of Jesus' listeners would have had some level of understanding that he was offering the kingdom. Though they may have been thinking more of a political revolution, get the Romans out of here and establish it that way, he's not really doing that, but he's offering himself and the kingdom. But as we see in this verse, in verse 15, it isn't just that the kingdom is going to be established with a snap of his fingers. Jesus is saying that the kingdom is at hand, that it is near. He was establishing that the kingdom was tied to himself, so he is calling for a decision. Part of the decision was whether the people would accept or reject Jesus as the Messiah. The other side of that is of repentance. Jesus continued the call that John had started, a call of repenting, repent and believe the gospel. Now this call of repentance is to acknowledge one's sins, to confess them to the Lord for forgiveness and to move away from sin. This word repent means to turn and move in the opposite direction. So the idea is that to repent of his sins is to confess them before God and to turn away and move from the sins and to God. Once the sinner repents, they must believe the gospel. They must accept Jesus. They must exhibit faith. Dr. Hebert expounds on this. The call to believe the gospel points to the good news as the basis of faith. Faith in the gospel message becomes the medium for faith in the Christ proclaimed by the gospel. The demands of repentance and faith run parallel. Genuine repentance prepares the heart for true faith in the gospel. Faith in the gospel makes the repentance evangelical. Repentance without faith leads to despair. Faith without repentance, sorry, faith without repentance from sin becomes presumption. Let me read that last sentence again. Repentance without faith leads to despair. Faith without repentance from sin becomes presumption. Jesus' message as he began his Galilean ministry in earnest was simple. The king has come. The kingdom is coming. Turn from your sins and to God. Believe that the king will save. Jesus' message was one of a call to belief and to discipleship. And we see more of this in the next few verses, picking up in verse 16. And as he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending their nets. 
And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Here we see calling disciples. Calling disciples. Now first, Jesus calls Simon, who was later called Peter, and his brother Andrew. Based on this passage, one could assume that these men didn't know Jesus or had even heard of him. But we know through John chapter 1, verses 35 to 42, that Jesus had met these men several months earlier. Andrew had been listening to John the Baptist and saw John call Jesus the Lamb of God. Andrew then got, went and got Peter and introduced him to Jesus as well. In this passage, Mark is reporting the official call of Andrew and Peter by Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus had returned to Galilee and was walking on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and called these men to follow him. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a large freshwater lake that is about 13 miles long and nearly seven miles wide at their furthest points. This lake uh, is called the Sea of Chinnereth or Gennesaret in the Old Testament. We see it in Numbers 34 and in Joshua 13. It is also called the Sea of Tiberias in John 6 and in John 21. It's called this because the, sea, the city of Tiberias is located on the western shore. That city was built by Herod Antipas in about 18, uh, the year 18 and was named after the Roman emperor. The name Sea of Tiberias was likely used and preferred by those concerned with loyalty to the emperor. Most people in the Galilean region probably refer to it as the Sea of Galilee or Gennesaret. Fishing was a major thriving industry on the Sea of Galilee. There have been reports of at least 16 harbors having access to the water and hundreds of fishing boats. Jesus found Peter and Andrew at work in their fishing boat. It seems that after John was imprisoned, they returned to their lives as fishermen. Now, it's unclear as to the time of day it was. Peter and Andrew are shown casting their nets into the water. So was this early in the morning, late in the evening? Was this a smaller net for a small amount of fish for a midday meal? We don't know, but they're seen casting. They're in the middle of working. We also don't know how far out they were. They don't, they don't typically cast nets, these large nets, close to shore or too close to shore. We see in verse 19 that Jesus went a little further up the shore and found James and John. James is typically listed first before John in the Gospels and about 15 times. And this is usually understood to indicate that he was the older brother. But also I don't wonder if Mark uh, was wanting to avoid confusion with John the Baptist mentioned earlier in the chapter. But James and John were working in their father Zebedee's boat. They were mending their nets, not casting them out. 
These nets were rather large with a rope around the perimeter, around the edge, where weights were attached to the net. It was a circular, maybe tent-like net. These were cast out. These weren't, uh, these weren't drag nets that were connected between two boats. These were cast by the men on the boat into the water. Then because of the weights, they would sink, hopefully catching any fish. And that rope was connected to the boat and the, it would be drawn close and they would haul the net back to shore. These nets needed cleaning. Tears needed to be fixed. James and John may have been doing prep work for the next trip out, hopefully to, do, to, hopefully to have a better haul than a previous one. They're repairing it, they're cleaning it, they're getting it ready. These guys are staying busy. The first four disciples Jesus called were fishermen, men who knew something of hard work, of patience and perseverance. In verse 17, Mark gives us the call to Peter and Andrew. And in verse 20, we can assume safely, I think, that Jesus gave the same call to James and John, though, not, though it's not explicitly written out there in verse 20. But what was this call? He says, follow me. Follow me. Therein is actually more literally translated as come after me. That's the way that the King James uh, has it. Come after me. But the intended understanding was to follow, not merely walking behind someone, but this is a call of discipleship. The other part of the call is that Jesus said he was going to train them to be fishers of men. Now, he was speaking, speaking figuratively. He wasn't saying, and I doubt that they would have actually understood this to mean, that they were going to be throwing nets on people and dragging them off. He didn't invent the phrase, fishers of men. Philosophers of the time had been using terms of capturing men's minds. It's that idea of, of training and, and changing people's minds and, and bringing them along to this. This was a call to be trained by Jesus, to be a part of his ministry, then to be able to go out and represent him preaching his message. MacArthur comments, they would be prepared by Jesus himself to be heralds of the kingdom through the proclamation of God's gospel. With this command, Jesus established the means by which his kingdom would advance. He, would, he uses transformed sinners whom he sovereignly identifies and summons. Such absolute authority behind such a summons belongs only to the messianic king who possesses the divine right to demand and gain that kind of allegiance. This call came with a cost, though. Peter and Andrew were called as they were fishing. And how did they respond? Verse 18 tells us they immediately threw down their nets and followed Jesus. James and John were working with their father in his fishing boat. They left their work and followed Jesus. 
The cost here for these men were giving up their livelihood. Peter, we knew, was married. James and John had responsibilities to, the, to their father's business. They left everything for Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying Peter abandoned his wife and to follow Jesus. James and John never spoke to Zebedee again. That's not what I'm saying. We see um, later in Luke chapter 5 that Peter was shown to be in a business partner with Zebedee before these men knew each other. So it's likely Zebedee took over some of the business and maybe helped care for Peter's family. That's an assumption. We don't, don't know that for sure. Though fishing was a somewhat modest and lowly profession, these men seem to be somewhat well off. Peter has his own home in Capernaum. And somehow John was known to the high priest. We see this in John 18, verse 15. Though that may be through a that may be a future acquaintance. But we see here that Zebedee's business was successful enough that he could afford hired servants to assist him in his business. Uh, verse 20 says, They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. He was, his business was successful enough he could afford to hire men to work. Peter and Andrew have apparently walked away from their sole source of income. And James and John have walked away from their father's business and a life of somewhat apparent comfort to wander the countryside with Jesus. Jesus' call to discipleship for these four men meant a severing of ties from their previous lives. They were going to be trained by Jesus so they can help proclaim his message, the gospel of God. In verses 14 to 15, we see a summary of Christ's message when he came to minister in Galilee. Repent and follow. Today, Christ's message is the same. Repent and follow. To be true disciples of Christ, we must first acknowledge our sin, our need of a Savior, and the faith that Jesus is the Savior as we turn away from our sins to follow him. In verses 16 to 20, we see the summary account of Jesus calling the first of his disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. For them, being a disciple was about a whole lifestyle change. Walking away from what they knew to be a part of Jesus' ministry and to be of service to him. Being a disciple isn't about a life of ease. It's about obeying Christ and to bear witness about him. Too many people look at salvation, look at accepting Christ as a little more than an insurance policy. They don't see the importance. They don't count the cost of discipleship. But a true believer, a true disciple of Jesus, knows that there is nothing more important 
than Christ and serving him faithfully. Have you made that decision? Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time and the reminder of the truths of this passage. We thank you, Lord, for the example we have in these men of being willing to walk away from their, from their lives, to sacrifice what they, what they knew, to follow after Christ. Later on, Peter would say, who else would we go to? You have the words of life. We thank you that you have called these men and that they are recorded here as examples for us. We thank you, Lord, for those for calling us. Lord, I pray that there are any here that need to make a decision of either of recommitting their, their following, recommitting their life of the discipleship, or making a decision of salvation. Lord, I pray that the Spirit would be at work, that there would be conviction there, and I pray that we would be able to assist them and to help them on their walk. We pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.